All right, but first up, if you're like many who like a stiff drink once in a while, you may feel like the BCGEU strike is a you know kind of a personal attack on your private life. Here's Stephanie Smith, uh, the BCGEU president, earlier on the Mike Smith Show. Our members are exercising what is their constitutional right, uh, protected under the Charter Rights of Freedoms, to withdraw their labor in support of bargaining. Uh, it is you know, a last-ditch tool that we have been forced by government's decisions to exercise. And um, by their very nature, strikes are disruptive. And so for those who are being, you know, impacted by that disruption, pick up the phone, call your MLA. We have a, a click-to-send tool on the BCGU website. They can email, they can tweet at their MLAs. Because the most astonishing thing, it's now been a week today as of 3.30 this afternoon. It will be exactly one week that we've been on strike. It has been deafening silence and disappointing silence from not just the NDP government, but every single MLA. No one has said a word. And as I said, government has the capacity and the ability to end this strike very quickly. That's Stephanie Smith, BCGEU. That's a tough uh, acronym, I'll tell you. She's the president of the, of the organization on the Mike Smith Show earlier today. You know, and she's saying there's a, basically nothing's happening. And this is not good news. This, is, uh, this strike could go on and could expand. We're hearing it's going to get bigger and broader. And, and, but what impact is this strike having, positive and potentially you know, negative? Uh, is this public sector strike having on the wine and craft beer industries, a very important industry in our province? To talk about this, I'm joined by two representatives. I've got Ken, Ken Beattie from uh, the BC Craft Brewers Guild. Hi, Ken. Hi, George. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining me. We've got Krista Lee McWaters. She's the chair of the, uh, the WGBC Board of Directors and General Manager of Time Family of Wines. Hi, Krista Lee. Hi, George. Thanks for joining me as well. Look, this is, uh, uh, you know, obviously this is not good news, and, and uh, we're hearing <laughs> this could go on for a while. And I first want to find out from each of you, because I think some people might be surprised. It might be good news, bad news. Uh, first off, Stephanie, how, how, or sorry, uh, how is it for you, uh, Krista Lee, for your industry, for the wine industry? You know, obviously it's concerning as there's any disruption in service, but really for us the biggest message is that we can continue to direct deliver to uh, private liquor stores, to consumers. So we encourage everyone to, you know, go online or visit your local winery, and we can still direct ship to you. So we're not out of wine. Uh, we can still get that to your door. We can also have the ability to ship directly to restaurants as well. So it's really, as always, our message continues to be the same and support local wherever possible. So it's, it, you can handle the potential uh, volume can, you know, if, it, if it increases significantly for wine at the restaurants as well. We, uh, we hope so, yes. I think so. But, yeah. how, how much wine are we talking about, do you know? Any idea how much wine that might have to be redirected direct to restaurants and to, uh, to individuals? Uh, well, that's a good question. Currently, as far as our market share through the government liquor stores, we generally sell about 25% of all BQA wines. So just so it could be, amount, could be sure. a big jump. Ken, uh, for the craft beer industry, it could be a little bit different. I mean, obviously, you don't, I don't know if you have the same kind of structure as the wine industry. Uh, we don't, actually. We have a mixed structure. So our, our largest members uh, go through the uh, warehouse, and so the warehouse is not moving any product. Our small members, what they call spec listing, you're allowed to direct deliver. But uh, the largest, you know, the brands that most people see in the liquor stores are cut off completely. 
Um, so this is really dire uh, straits for us. Those, those, uh, you know, it looks nice and sunny, and you think there'd mm-hmm. be a lot of people drinking beer, but it's really having an impact on our our membership to the point of if this goes long, like even into next week, those the, our number of our members are going to really have to cut back production, which will lay off workers. So it's it's a desperate time for sure. And is it mainly because you don't have your own individual distribution system set up like they do for the wine industry, which has a very you know somewhat sophisticated? They've been doing it for a while. Uh, they've been marketing it for a while, but it's maybe it's a more complex. Why haven't you uh, broadened that area in the in, in the years? Well, in the years, it's it's just that you go through the the, the warehouse, the distribution, uh, the government liquor store warehouse. If you're you're either kind of in it or you're out of it. So, the members who are in it are either grandfathered or they brought in because they have the largest brand. So the government literally the LBB picks and chooses its biggest brands. It'll make the most amount of money and the most margin, which makes sense. That's retailing 101. Right. But the issue is the issue is that there's no backup system for those members. So they can't just all of a sudden find trucks and warehouses and people to do, deliver to the private stores. We do a great business at the private stores and we agree, do a great business at the uh, hospitality trade. Yep. But so far this week, we haven't seen any lift. In fact, we've seen massive decreases. Wow. Crystal Lee, for the wine industry, um, while on the one hand, you've got the distribution network, uh, and, and there's been some progress in general, I would say, in liquor controls and liquor distribution and liquor, and, you know, and how we've evolved a little bit in the last several years. But how, are we evolved far enough as a province? Do you feel that we could be move a bit faster in how we manage and sell and distribute our, our, our you know, all alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely room for improvement. You know, we have come a long way over the past 30 years, but there still is uh, lots of opportunity for for increased efficiencies and a little less red tape in all of our industries. So, With the liquor basically controlled by the province, this is government controlling, you know, how alcohol is distributed. Uh, you know, in Alberta had a similar thing many years ago, but they, they got rid of it. They went pro- fully private. Is that something that maybe BC should be looking at? Uh, I think as an industry, we, you know, we've always sort of looked at that, but I don't think that's going to happen in British Columbia anytime soon. Why? Uh, I think the strength of the of the government system and of the BCGEU and the volume that is sold through the BC liquor stores. So they and they and the money they make, I imagine, is going to get rid of that exactly. cash cow. Exactly. Yeah, Cam, what and do as you? A province, sorry, go ahead. We need that, right? Sorry, as yeah. a province, we do need that revenue for sure. But taxation can come in different ways. They could tax direct to you, couldn't they? Yes, and they do. So, so they double tax. They mm-hmm. make the, or they make the revenue and they tax. So it'll be the revenue they'd lose from the, the markup. Is that how it works? Correct. Yeah. Right. Ken, what do you think? You know, should we move towards a more private system? It, it, given the challenges your industry is facing, which are much more complex, uh, especially related to distribution, and you've got what seems like uh, a, you know a monopoly controlled in, in an environment where they're they're telling us what we get to drink and what alcohol, what beer we'd like to have uh, on the shelves. Uh, should the province maybe go private? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely for, for your viewers' interest. There, there is a. Uh, it's called the BTAP. It's a business technical uh, advisory panel. It was set up four years ago. Uh, it's a cross section of all manufacturers and retailers and hospitality trade in uh, the uh, liquor industry. And it reviewed, there's 24 recommendations and certainly mm-hmm. distribution is one of those recommendations. So we continue to work as an industry all together collaboratively with the government to look at these sorts of things. And now, I mean, between covid 
of floods, supply chain issues, um, the lack of being able to move product around. When we, when this labor uh, dispute is settled, and let's hope they get together really quickly and start yeah. to talk, um, when this is settled, this is something that the industry has to go full bore on moving forward and really look at what can we do as an industry and with government to alleviate these problems, because we've had them for three years mm-hmm. with COVID and, and the flooding. Yeah, and it's really hard on the industry. Totally. And we've heard from the wine industry on station here about the challenges or the restaurant industry and how they're facing or, you know, they're really worried because they've had a rough couple of years as well. Uh, you know, so for, for you, Krista Lee, just real quick, you know, are, are you still are you hopeful that things will get resolved? Are you sensing that, they'll, you know, we're not hearing that from the BCGEU, but... Oh, absolutely. We'd like to get this resolved. Um, you know, as Ken mentioned, we've just had our industry, as far as restaurants, our partners, our private liquor stores have been devastated through mm-hmm. COVID. And as Ken mentioned, the floods, you know, just, yeah. tourism is slower than normal as well. So, um, it, yeah, it's we, just like, we would like this to be yes, one thing after the I other. I know. When is this going to end? Break, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. Thanks very much for joining me. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett rocking there. Damn, nice. Nice. Hope you're having a great day. Um, you know, this first story, I found this, came on into my inbox, and I'm like, oh, my God. And seriously? Polio, monkeypox, Marburg virus, and other infectious diseases are surging around the globe. Apparently, there's not one thing driving this surge. A multi-layered perfect storm is what I've, I've read has been brewing for some time to discuss this. And to take your calls is one of uh, one of the only Jason Tetro, a microbiologist and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Hey, Jason. Hello Jason, there. Jason, 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 Jason. Why? Why? What is this? Why are we seeing, like, come on. I just, uh, we're just getting used to normal now. This is brutal. Yeah, well, let me, let me just take you back to 1999, because I actually wrote a paper on this, what we're seeing today, back then. And we were looking at all the different societal trends that could lead to infectious disease spread. Yeah. And I mean, some of the things I'm sure you probably heard about, like increased and faster travel, uh, greater spillover from animals into humans, uh, lack of vaccination. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the antibiotic resistance, which, of course, everybody's forgotten about. It'll come right. back. Right. Just yes. let me know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got it. Noted. But I mean, so like 20 some odd years ago, we were already talking about this. And then back in 2019, I actually highlighted about 10 different uh, potential pathogens Mm -hmm. that will probably escape and start spreading across the world. Um, And what's really interesting is that the ones that I didn't sort of put in my paper because I thought, well, we have vaccinations, we have the ability to, you know, have hygiene, Mm -hmm. Um, we're not doing the spillover that could possibly lead to spread across the world. I, I got it wrong. Oh, <laughs> all of, all of that has happened. Right. And yes. believe me, it's taken me completely off guard as well that what happened during COVID, essentially people got so hyper-focused on mm-hmm. one bug, they forgot about everything else. Well, not to mention funding and all those other things. I mean, I remember oh the gosh. days when uh, you had uh, Bill Gates, was the main focus was polio, right, in, in Africa. And he was trying yeah, to eradicate so, that. And that was his main focus. And he, there was a documentary on it and how complicated this was. There was like only a few hundred thousand people left or something. And, and mm-hmm. he just couldn't stop it. And, no. and now it's coming back again, even worse, because we've been focused on this other virus. 
Well, that's it, is the fact that when we have lack of vaccination, mm-hmm. um, then vaccine-preventable diseases are, are going to show up. So, right. I mean, we're, look, we're already talking about monkeypox. Um, that's mm-hmm. because not everybody's smallpox vaccinated anymore. We're looking at polio because we just, you know, we don't have that high rate of polio vaccination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the issues that we're facing. I'm, meningitis. I mean, you might remember a couple of years ago, there was an outbreak, I believe, in uh, New Brunswick. We're at, at a um, at a college or university. Um, now we're seeing these outbreaks happening far more often, and they seem to be cyclical. So they're happening about every six to twelve years, depending on where you happen to be in the world. And now we're seeing another one happening down in Florida. Hmm. Uh, all you need to do is get vaccinated; it's not going to be a problem. Well, I think yeah, that's, that's really the issue we're uh, facing right yes. now: is we're not doing what's necessary. I know. And I think we're maybe here in British Columbia, we're a little bit uh, naive sometimes because we did such a good job of the vaccination as a, as a percentage compared to mm-hmm. other places around the world, certainly in North America and certainly compared to the United States. And there's this exhaustion of vaccinations. Is there some of that going on? Are we just like, and then there's this conspiracy theories about it and all these other things. And so we're working mm-hmm. against ourselves. Is that kind of what's going on as well? This, this, the PR is really bad for vaccinations. Oh, man. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) As someone who used to be involved in helping to um, script and and sculpt these messages, Mm -hmm. what has happened since the beginning of COVID has just been terrifying for someone like myself because I can see that with the lack of proper messaging that's coming from our higher authorities, what ends up happening Mm -hmm. is that it just gives those other people, the aunties, as I like to call Mm -hmm. them, the footing that they need. And now it's not just simply... Um, the, the COVID vaccines, now it's like every single vaccine. And, and at the end of the day, as we did find out with the COVID vaccine, we do hear many sad stories of people who decided, I'm not getting vaccinated, right. mm-hmm. and then end up either in ICU or, in, unfortunately, the morgue. Mm-hmm. And, and all we say is, oh, well, no, we should be actually pointing that out as a mm-hmm. way of showing that, yes, vaccination is very, very important. So give me some hope here. <laughs> like, well, okay, please. so let's just put it this way. When we start talking about things like Marburg and Ebola, Mm -hmm. we really are talking about spillover, okay? When we talk about polio and monkeypox and meningitis uh, and even uh, some of the, um, you know, the echoviruses and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, uh, we we can sort of vaccinate or at least help to protect against that. I think where the big problem lies is that, as I said in 2019, we have these sort of hidden outbreaks that essentially go along almost like a nervous system, if you will, within those communities, and they start spreading around. Mm -hmm. And then they start popping up through a different kind of spillover from those communities into the general public, and then all of a sudden it becomes a huge thing. We just saw this with monkeypox, but we've seen it with Mm -hmm. mumps. I mean, it's not something that's new. It's just that the actual virus is something most people haven't really heard about. But if we said it happened with measles, with uh, Disneyland, or it happened with mumps, with the NHL, you're all going to nod your head and say, oh, yeah, I remember that. Well, it's the same thing. Obviously, the pandemic with, you know, was a whole different ballgame as far as massive, you know, the whole international problem. But mm-hmm. one of the things that I thought was quite interesting, I'm not sure how this might help all these other things coming along, is, is, is our sewage system and how much data we can pull from there as far as what's <laughs> happening and micromanage potentially outbreaks. Is that potentially a possibility or does it have to be a certain volume? Or yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's one of the, how do we know when something beyond... Uh, just uh, people getting sick, you know, when we find out, oh, my God, it's really taking up in this area or that area. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what we kind of call sentinel testing. Um, if, if you actually look at Yelp, you can actually find out when foodborne outbreaks are happening in your city. Because <laughs> of people complaining. It's, yeah, I call it yeah. epidemiology. It's right. great. Um, but the thing is, is that with wastewater, uh, and, and by the way, um, I, I love sharing this totally useless fact that polio was the first virus that was tested for when it came to wastewater back in mm-hmm. 1939. And I used to do this in the laboratory for other types of viruses like hepatitis A virus. Maybe that's not so useless. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, but the thing is that wastewater, um, you know, Yelp, and, and other th- types of things, and I know if the sick weather people are listening, they do a fantastic job of it. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is we're trying to get a feel as to what is currently happening. And that's a problem because then we're always playing Too catch late. up. Yep. We want to try and be ahead of it. And I know lots of people are going to say very, very bad things about a certain Dr. Bonnie Henry. But <laughs> let me tell you something. She really, really, really tried <laughs> mm-hmm. to be ahead of COVID. And unfortunately, human nature beat the public health official and that's the problem we all face is that our human nature is just to go out have a good time do what we want and oh my goodness what is this bump on me oh dear then we have to deal with it. right what she did do i think what we did do in bc right was that we didn't politicize it too much uh, i think the parties came together um they let her do this tell the story for the most part and i think mm-hmm. that made it less stressful or less political for us in british columbia where we didn't have a politician trying to convince us which is well you know. and and the thing is, is i personally know a few public health uh, like chiefs of public health mm-hmm. and they all have that same wish right but at the end of the day, you're still an employee of a particular government. And so it really comes down to how well the government is going to treat you. And that's why British Columbia, from my perspective, has done so well, because mm-hmm. Dr. Henry had the full government support. George Affligan for Jill today. and hope you're doing well. And Jason Tetro, microbiologist and host of the super awesome science shows. My guest, and we're taking your call, 604-280-9898. Is the number? It's open. Lines are open right now. 604 280 And we've got Alex from New Westminster. Alex, you got a question or you want to make a point? What's up? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Two quick points. Uh, one, uh, I guess I was uh, vaccinated for polio back in the 1960s. Mm. Should I, do I need a booster? And also, I can't get, seem to get an answer from my neurologist. He says talk to the GP, but I have a brain aneurysm. I've had my, two, my first two COVID shots. And I'm wondering, and I got a, I got a blood clot on the second shot with AstraZeneca. I was wondering if it's safe for me to get a booster. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Alex. Uh, Jason, you know, two two questions there. One is one is a good good one that I I'm I'm confused too as far as you know I got a scar on my arm from when I got that shot when I was a kid. I can't remember which one it was. You know, well, that I mean, was smallpox. That was yeah. smallpox. Okay. Yeah. What, what, is, so what with, do you think? Well, with polio, um, you have the series that you have as a child, and then you're protected pretty much for life because mm-hmm. polio doesn't mutate like something like COVID does. Um, so yeah, you, you've got it. You should be very good. There shouldn't be any problems. Now, as for the other. Um, Brain aneurysm is something that is not microbiological. Right. <laughs> so, unfortunately, I really don't know what the potential risk would be. Mm-hmm. However, one of the things that we do know about vaccination is that it does raise inflammatory profiles, and that could potentially lead to a higher risk. This is why, for anyone who has any kind of um, secondary condition mm-hmm. or what we call a comorbidity, this is a discussion that you really need to be having with your healthcare provider. Now, if they don't know, that can be sometimes mm-hmm. difficult. But at the end of the day, um, you know, 
that's also why we have the ABCs of protecting your airway, keeping to your bubbles and knowing who your contacts are. Because if you can't get the vaccine, and I know lots of people who can't, then at least you can still stay safe. Well, it sounds like he had two vaccinations, and I'm surprised that it's not more clear to them what he should do. But it seems like the, the process already started for him, and I'm, it's, yeah, it sounds and I mean, frustrating. If you've, if you've already had two vaccinations, then that means that you're probably going to be very good mm-hmm. against uh, any kind of severe illness. Yeah. Now it's just really a matter of seeing whether or not the booster can help you. Um, but this is not something that I can even comment yes, on. Don't go there. <laughs> an aneurysm is just not something I can no. talk about. The lines are open, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, talking to Jason Tetra. Hey, Jason, you, Fauci just retired, like right before the show. I think he announced he's, he's done, he's, he's out of there uh, yeah. in the States. What are your, th- what are your thoughts? What will, what will he go down in history, uh, your thoughts on that? Well, Tony was always HIV guy. And, and for me um, and other people who uh, are experts on the show, such as Brian Conway, mm-hmm. um, Jason Kinderluck, I mean, HIV is where we kind of all started. Mm-hmm. And so I would have really liked that to have been his legacy because he did such great things along mm-hmm. with Francis Collins, who also is now is retired from NIH. Um, the fact of the matter is, is he did his best under the circumstances he was under. And I know that he really became the fall guy for a lot of what was talking about. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, um, I hope people realize that he did more to help public health than any of the people who might consider him to be, you know, along the same lines as the Bill Gates and the Soroses, et cetera, et cetera. That's not who Anthony Fauci was. Right. He was literally someone who truly cared about public health throughout his entire career. And for, I mean, you, you love the limelight, I know, Jason, but for most scientists, it's about solving problems. Oh, and- no, no, no. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong. The guy loved being on stage. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. We've got Fernando from Vancouver. Go ahead, Fernando. you got a question or a comment uh, for Jason here. Yeah. Yes, uh, good day. Good day. Uh, just uh, a question. Uh, if I got my, uh, excuse me, my chickenpox uh, mm-hmm. shot when I was a young child, uh, uh, am I okay uh, for uh, uh, catching chickenpox or even monkeypox uh, now, or what do I need? Uh, good good question. Yeah, yeah, yeah thanks, Fernando, because chickenpox is, you know, that's I caught chickenpox, but now I can get something else yeah, as an so adult. Yeah, so chickenpox is actually not a pox virus. It's called the varicella zoster virus. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's called a chickenpox because it looks like pox, and nobody ch- has changed it since. So if you were vaccinated against chickenpox, that's great. As you get older, you're going to want to get vaccinated against shingles as well because mm-hmm. shingles is reactivated chickenpox. So that's the first thing. The second thing, monkeypox is an orthopox virus, which is like smallpox. So if you have that little thing on the, on the side of your arm, like you were just talking about from mm-hmm. that vaccination, then there's a good likelihood you're not going to get monkeypox. Hmm. However, if you don't have that, like myself, because I'm too young. Then <laughs> Ouch. If, Come on. Uh, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I know, and I'm too I, old. I, get, I can get away with that. You, <laughs> you know? can. But um, if you don't have that and you are in a risk at risk community, then it is something that you may want to consider. Okay. But again, because we do have limited supplies at the moment, it's not something that the general public should be seeking. Right. This is something more that the communities within that neural Most, network that I talked yeah. about in the previous segment should be looking right. for. Thanks, Fernando. Real quick, Dan from Vancouver, you got a question or a point? Hi, Jason. Yeah, um, I was born and raised here in Vancouver. Uh, born in 1960. I don't have that smallpox scar. My wife does, but uh, mm-hmm. she emigrated here in 63 from South America. Yeah. Hmm. Did I miss yeah, that? Uh, yeah. That's the, just because you don't have the scar doesn't mean you didn't get it. Right, Jason? I don't know. Well, no, if you don't have the scar, then there's a good likelihood you probably didn't hmm. get it. And, I mean, they getting the smallpox vaccine 
if you had been of a certain age, there was a massive campaign because we wanted to eradicate it. But there were places where people simply did not get the vaccine. So that's usually the best opportunity to f- or option is just to look for that, that pockmark. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's not there, then just simply assume that you didn't uh, get smallpox. Uh, you didn't get the smallpox vaccine. All right. All right. Dan, thanks for your call. And Jason, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you finding time. Hey, no problem at all. It was a fun. Welcome back, Hour 2. George Afflecking for Jill. I hope you're doing well. Beautiful, sunny, sun, August day. It's Monday. Uh, and I'm here all week and all next week filling in for Jill while she fills in for Simi. So I hope uh, I can live up to the standards that Jill has here. Look, so we've got an interesting show for you. We've got a couple hours left here. Coming up in this hour, we're going to be talking about WestJet and their unwillingness, uh, their pushback on paying compensation uh, to passengers. And we're also going to talk about uh, road taxes. Uh, is it true? Is it happening? Is it going to be coming to Vancouver? One political party says so. Uh, our guest will say, mm, probably not. But first... David Eby's uh, suggestion that uh, drug users and those with mental health challenges be forced into involuntary care is being called uncompassionate and wrong by his challenger. Angelia Paterai is candidate for leader of the NDP and social justice activist, and she joins us now. Hello. Hi there. Thank you for joining me. Look, you know, why is it, why, why, why is this, why are you saying this, that it's uncompassionate and wrong? Obviously, David's in there. He's been uh, fighting the good fight. And now he's saying this. What's, what's so, what's so uncompassionate and wrong about it? Oh, I, I think that, uh, I think that David E.B. has done really good work on the ground in this community um, over the past 10 years. But I think what uh, is missing here is that there needs to be a total shift in the philosophy of social policy around this toxic drug crisis. Mm-hmm. It's, not, <clears throat> it's, it's not about saving lives through robbing people of their agency. It's about saving lives through giving people agency, giving people choice. And the way that you give people choice is to invest in the services that, that uh, allow them to make the choice for a better life because nobody, nobody wants to be in the situation that so many drug users right now um, across the province are. Um, and so the way to stop those overdoses and, and, and those crises from happening in the first place is through a safe, reliable, regulated drug supply. And that's something that we've been dancing around and, and refusing to invest in um, as a province for far too long. And it's, and it's uh, exacerbating the crisis on the ground. But there are those, and in fact, you look to San Francisco, and there's a story that just came out today about uh, this person who went undercover. Uh, and I think you hear these kind of stories in Vancouver, and they're down in these areas, and they're getting all the drugs they need and all this stuff, but nobody ever asks them, you need help, You're, or sort of almost tells them, look, you need, we need to get you some help. You've clearly got some problems. And I think, is that what uh, David E.B. is saying? He's saying, we've got to just deal with this problem. These, they're, they're not getting the help from just getting the drugs. They need to be helped in an institutionalization situation, which is a dirty word, I know, but people, uh, you know, I would say that polling in Vancouver, if, and I'm sure David Eby's done it, is saying that's what people want. I don't think that that's what the community wants that's most effective by this crisis. Mm-hmm. We've heard very loud and clear since David Eby made those remarks that um, experts in the field do not think that that's a good idea. This, the studies have shown, the research has shown that involuntary care does not lead to better outcomes. It doesn't actually improve people's lives. Um, it's uh, it's a band-aid that robs people of dignity and of choice. What they do need and what has been shown 
um, through evidence is that community care is what gives people that pathway out of um, out of the life that they that they've gotten uh, themselves into. And so we need to invest in community space and in spaces where where people can come and have a, a safe space to to be with other people and to talk about um, talk actually imagine remember what what a better life could be like actually imagine some mm-hmm. pathways forward and then we need employment opportunities people mm-hmm. want to work i'm hearing from folks on the streets that they they want to work they're like do you know of any job opportunities but we don't we don't have programs for that and so there's a whole host of public investments that can be made in community that offer people choices it but really does there, come down to choice well, I mean, but you would there you'd be down to the downtown east side. There are, I don't know how many different or, organizations, uh, you know, mm-hmm. helping uh, people down there. And there are uh, mm-hmm. automatic dispensing machines for drugs. There's the safe injection sites, which Vancouver was a leader on. Uh, we mm-hmm. used to have this four pillar program, which is kind of what you're talking about, I think, where you need to provide all. You can't all. You can't have a table with just yeah. two legs. Uh, you know, it's it's a multitude of problems. Yeah. But if you look at Vancouver, we seem to be bearing all the responsibility and all the focus is on us. Um, and there's lots of support mm. down there. Uh, you can go totally. and get free groceries. You can get free drugs. You can get free furniture. Uh, I've yeah. been down there. I've gone in those spaces. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. to. It seems to be making the problem worse. I and mean, maybe that's where David Eby's coming from. Yeah, and I and I, I I hear where you're coming from. And I think one thing about this is that the devil's in the details, mm. right? So we when we have this idea that there are a lot of services and a lot of opportunities available to people, um, but actually in practice, those services are not adequate. It, it sort of fuels this prevailing attitude that mm-hmm. these people want to live like this. Mm-hmm. People want to live in that situation, and that's simply not true. What we know from Safe Supply, which is a federally funded program, is that it's a woefully inadequate, um, a woefully inadequately resource program. And what we know from Safe Supply is that it's kind of all or nothing. You can't do halfway Safe Supply. So you can't give people not, you know, not enough quantities of the drugs that they need because they're still going to go out and try to procure um, those substances in other ways that, 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 are, um, that are what they were doing before, the unsafe practices and, and getting access to a poison supply, which mm-hmm. is where the problem really begins. And so and, and also when Safe Supply doesn't actually address the drugs that people's bodies are used to, they're, they're drugs of choice, um, a, a drug is something that someone takes because they want to feel better or they want to escape the world or they want to um, take a break from reality. And so a Safe Supply should aim to actually address that. And when it doesn't, it makes the problem worse. But it gives a false impression that there's something actually happening and there's support being provided. And I think that's the same with a lot of the services that are being provided in, in that community in Vancouver. And I totally agree that Vancouver is facing um, the brunt of, um, of the issue. But what I know is that there are uh, really amazing folks working on the ground across sure. the province who, who are connected to the communities and know what the solution might be. Um, and if we invested in the right places, we would see a lot more movement. Okay, so this is a competition for leadership of the NDP. You're in the race. Um, 
what is David Eby thinking then? I mean, is he polling this, uh, you know, doesn't this go against uh, some of the principles of the party that you're trying to lead? Uh, and, you know, this, his, mm-hmm. his, his call for people with mental health challenges to be forced into involuntary care, uh, while politically mm-hmm. popular, perhaps even in his specific riding, uh, it certainly doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. the basic principles of the NDP. And, and if you don't win... Uh, mm-hmm. What? Where do you stand then if this goes through and he pushes this through as an NDPer? Well, same place I'm landing now. I mean, it, to me, this goes against the values of the party, and I can't speak for David Eby. This, mm-hmm. and, and I also acknowledge that he has a lot of years of experience working on this incredibly complex issue. But the facts are very clear: um, people on the ground, um, experts who have been working in this field and studying this field for years, have have all pointed over and over again to the fact that the evidence does not support that involuntary care produces better outcomes mm-hmm. to actually solve the issue. And so I would, I would land on the same place. I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think we need an overall shift in the whole philosophy of how we make policies around this drug mm-hmm. issue. And when I use the word uncompassionate, that's really the shift that needs to happen. It's towards a compassionate approach that gives people choice because they're humans who deserve the same amount of dignity. And I know there's a lot of stigma around this issue where we assume that people uh, don't don't want to make their lives better. And I think that that assumption is something that we really need to tackle because everybody wants to make their lives better. Everybody wants a good life. And we just need to trust and believe that. Okay, I'll let you go. And I appreciate you finding time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Jill today. Now, last week, WestJet filed a motion to the Federal Court of Appeal, the FCA, asking it to hear its appeal of a recent ruling by the Canadian Transportation Agency. WestJet doesn't uh, want to compensate a traveller after their flight was cancelled due to lack of staff. The case could significantly impact Canadians' rights to be compensated for recent air travel issues and delays due to, you know, pretty well-documented airline staff shortages. Joining us now is Gabor Lukash. He's a president of the Air Passenger Rights. Hey, Dr. Gabor. Dr. Good Lukash. afternoon. Good, good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. Okay, <laughs> this is uh, obviously uh, this could be president setting. What? What? What's? What, why is this important? This case. Well, WestJet is WestJet has been refusing uh, claims for compensation owed to passengers under the APPR, and they have been making this bogus excuse that somehow. Staffing shortage is not their problem. They have been claiming in some cases I've seen in our Facebook group, even claiming staffing shortage outside of their control or mm-hmm. their, their control, but safety issue. And the Canadian Transportation Agency, which in my view is very airline friendly, for once did the right thing and came down the side of the passenger and saying, look, it is your business decision. You decide how you staff your flights. So be a grown man, be a grown <laughs> person, uh, you know, take responsibility for it. And, of course, uh, they are very unhappy about it. Uh, this, is, this is really the, the, the background to this. Uh, they would really hate to have to pay yeah. passengers the compensation, which is awfully owed to passengers. And now they are, they are trying to convince the Federal Court of Appeal that the Canadian Transportation Agency made some kind of error, arguing that, oh, it's really the passenger mm-hmm. that should somehow prove the negative that, 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 it, that it wasn't uh, within the carrier's control. Uh, oh, sorry, it, it was within the carrier's control. It wasn't that, that somehow, right. if they don't have enough staff, that is not something outside of their control as a reason, which is somewhat absurd. Normally, in, in you know litigation, it's whoever claims something has to prove it, and because they are really um, they're, they're blaming international that, that, the whole COVID and international crisis, and that's not our fault, kind of thing. 
Actually, it's it's unclear in what they're saying. They're <laughs> okay. they're just talking about staff shortage. So the chance, uh, you know, it, without having details, though, how do they potentially win that? I mean, it seems like it would be a stretch. You know, it, it's 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 uh, one of the problems is what what happens? Who's going to defend the case? Mm. Um, I don't know whether the passenger has the resources, the ability right. to have a legal team there mm. to defend. The Indian transportation agency might step in, but they are really airline friendly, and they they they. As we see quite often when the government is involved, they put up put up a defense that is really not you know just kind of like a, a, a show for show, mm-hmm. and uh, and and you know I'm I'm troubled by the appearance. I'm really, I really want to see how much of a defense the Canadian Transportation Agency is going to put up here if the passenger is not responding, because I, I think that that in, this would be one of those cases where the Canadian Transportation Agency, if the passenger is not responding, should already be defending at the leave stage. It's an unusual move, but. Somebody should be defending on behalf system, on behalf of the passenger, or, or on behalf of the public. You know, they just, yeah, just sure, the public. But if but if but if there is nobody showing up for the passenger because, for example, they don't have the resources to fight. Yeah, sure, money, then, time. Then, then somebody somebody has to, mm-hmm. um, and, and and that's really concerning. Kind of you know, yes, it, it it is one case, but it affects so many other people. So I mean, right now, the, 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 what is at stake now at this stage is whether the court will even hear the case. If the court agrees to hear the case, then perhaps. Some organizations uh, may seek leave to intervene. They may want to say, hey, uh, perhaps because the, if the passenger is not involved at all or not defending, you know, mm-hmm. def- looking at the big picture, then someone may want to come there and say, I want to speak to address the public interest here and uh, defend the case. What, what really concerns me is that, that even though the Canadian Transportation Agency's decision is binding and it's good law and everything until it gets overturned, I often see situations like this being used as an excuse for not enforcing the law. Oh, well, it's before the court, so we are going to kind of hold back on it. And that's not how enforcement should go. Like, if, you know, if, if there is, say, a challenge to, to, to um, some laws, yeah. whether, whether it was at some point possession right, Supreme of Supreme Court or whatever, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just because something is being challenged before a court doesn't mean that the enforcement body should not continue enforcing yeah. it. Sure. And and lack of enforcement has been the biggest problem with the, with the huh. federal government. Uh, passengers' rights are not being enforced. Period. Uh, so because the rules, it, sorry, the rules are quite clear for airlines and what they're supposed to compensate. I mean, we, every country has their own rules. Europe has its own rules. If this happens and this happens and this many hours, you get this much money. It's already set. They should just follow the rules, right? In terms of hours, yes, but whether compensation is owed at all. This issue of safety is in and on itself a very big loophole that we have been flagging for the federal government for a long time. Mm. You, don't, you don't have this type of within the airlines control but for safety loophole in Europe. There it has to be a truly extraordinary right. circumstance. And not hiring enough staff or, or having, you know, scheduling more flies in than, than infrastructure mm-hmm. can handle, it's obviously a normal business decision for an airline. And it's kind of a no-brainer that, that it is within the airlines control. It's not a safety issue. Totally. So... Uh, the question is really, you know, the government should have already taken far more aggressive enforcement steps and should continue doing so. And the airlines may fight in court, but in the meantime, they should be paying fines for not compensating passengers. All right, Dr. That's exactly right. Dr. Lukas, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me.